And I don't know about you, but can you believe that 2023 is already over? It's kind of surprising. It's kind of shocking, isn't it? It's just, wow, where'd it go? Uh, but I, I, love, I love the new year. I, I love when the new year kicks off. I don't know about you, but for me, there's just like this sense of hope, this sense of anticipation. Like, what does the new year have in store for us? I, I get excited about it. Anybody else with me? There's, this, there's always this looking forward, like, what's God going to do this year? Like, I get, I get really excited about it. And I'm a little bit of a nerd, just a, just a little bit, maybe, maybe a, little, a little more than that. But uh, I love setting goals for, for, for each year. Anybody, any other goal setters, like type A, like you already got a list ready to go? Yeah. Uh, I, I love setting goals for the new year. You're my people. Because, uh, th- so, so just a little insight into my life. The day after Christmas, my wife and I took off work and we had this amazing date where we opened up our calendars and just planned out the year. It's wonderful. It's a great time. And, and <laughs> maybe not. I owe her one. Uh, she's down in front of you just glaring at me. Uh, but, but, you know, we planned out the year and we were looking at our calendar. Okay, what's the year got in store? What do we need to be planning for? You know, we got winter camps coming up. And my daughter's going to high school winter camp this year. And then they got summer camps coming. We got other things going on throughout the year. Uh, and what are some of the big things we want to block off for vacation or whatever else? Like, what are some of the big dates we need to put on the calendar? What are some of the goals that we have that we want to plan for and, and start preparing for? Uh, one of the big things this year is I set a goal two years ago to go back and get my master's in divinity, and I'm about to graduate in the summer, Lord willing, you know, I'm close. Yeah, thank you. And so, you know, that was one of the goals I set, and now I'm like, okay, what's next? I love, I love just setting these goals. But, but here's the thing. Setting goals, you've, maybe you're aware of this. One of the, the problems with setting goals is that we often fail to keep them. Anybody understand that? You know what I'm talking about? Like, go to the gym January 1st. It's packed. Go February 1st. You're good. Any machine you want, right? Like, everybody's gone. Uh, Because we set these goals, but we don't always keep them. Anybody understand the struggle? Uh, And and why is that? One of the reasons, I think, is because we have competing goals in our life. We have competing goals. We have certain things like we say we want to do this, but we also really want this too. And maybe we don't even know that we have this goal, but we got it. Like for example, I may really want to lose weight, but I also really want pizza. <laughs> That's a tough one. Conflicting goals in my life, right? The pizza keeps winning. It's so good. I, you know, maybe you're, you're somebody you really want to save for retirement. You really want to bo- like build up your nest egg. You really want to save, save, save. But man, you also really want that car. You really want that vacation. Maybe your kid needs braces and you really want them to not look like a piranha. (laughs) You know, the AC goes out in your house and you realize you have this new goal of not burning to death in Arizona summers. And all of a sudden, you've got conflicting goals. And, and, and what happens is, is these urgent things, these things that pop up make you realize that you got these other priorities as well. And sometimes if we're not careful, you have these conflicting goals that kind of compete with one another and even sabotage some of the bigger things that we hope to accomplish because there's something else that we also want to do. And so uh, the, the, one way to think about this is that you're going to do what you adore. You'll do what you adore. Whatever you set your mind on, whatever you set your heart on, whatever you're focused on, whatever it is you love, that's what you're going to do in the end. So you may say you want to do this, but you really deep down, your heart's actually after this. And sometimes those things sabotage what you think you want to do because your, your, your heart's over here. Does that make sense? Your, your, your actions follow your affections. Your, act, your, your actions and your behaviors are ultimately going to do what you want to do. So you may say, I want to set this goal, I want to do this, but really your heart's over here. And you, and you may start strong over here, but eventually you're going to end up where your heart's going. Uh, so whatever you adore, that's what you're going to be going after. That's what you're going to do. So one way to think about that this year is what will you adore 
in 2024. You like how I rhyme that? That's what I work on all week in the office. That's, that's it. I'm just kidding. But, but what will you adore in 2024? What is it your heart's going to be set on? What is it that you're pursuing? What is it you're aiming at? And whatever it is that your heart is going towards, that's going to be what you're doing. So if you want to change a behavior, if you want to set a goal, if you want to do something in life, you've got to have your heart changed and shaped and, and move towards that with your heart first, whatever you're adoring, whatever you're aiming for first, before your actions will start following that. And so today I want to talk about, as we're thinking about goals and the new year and all that stuff, I want to talk about the only goal that you really need in life. The most important goal that if you set this one goal, everything else is going to fall into place. Does that sound good or what? And so uh, we're going to look at that because that's what the apostle Paul was all about. And he writes about it in Philippians chapter 3. So if you got a Bible with you, turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, you got them in the pews in front of you. We've got them up on the screens. Pull it up on your app, on your phone, whatever you need to do. But uh, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Uh, and just to give a little backstory of where we're going with this, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul was writing the book of Philippians while in prison in Rome, in chains for preaching the gospel. And as he's in prison, he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, this Greek city, encouraging them and writing, the, the, oddly enough, the whole book's about joy and, and, and good things while he's in chains. But Paul, right before he writes this in verse 8, is he starts writing his list of like accomplishments of what he did in life. He was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. Uh, he he uh, was a keeper of the law. He was one who, uh, as a, at a young age, rose to some status and authority and power, um, uh, outpacing all of his other peers. And Paul had really made something of his life. But if you know the story of Paul... You know that while he was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, exercising his religious power and authority as a Pharisee, he was confronted and met by Jesus on the road. And instantly everything in his life changed. He went from somebody who was persecuting and killing Christians to somebody who was a Christian. And all of his goals, all of his aims in life absolutely shifted completely right around. And now all of a sudden he's looking around and he's got completely new goals. And so he starts writing about this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's Paul's number one focus. Everything else in life, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, it's, he says it's rubbish. And that's not a word we use very often today. I think uh, if you look at the, the translation, I think the, 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 the translators of the Bible, the ESV version that we're reading today, were pretty, uh, pretty uh, kind here and trying to like tiptoe around it maybe a little bit using words like rubbish. Because in the original Greek, what that word means is literally dung. And that's, that's like the, the most kind way I can say that word, right? Uh, and I don't even know, I'm allowed to say that in church. But Paul says it here. He's saying everything compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, everything else in life at the end is literally just a pile of dung. That's all it is. All of his accomplishments, all of the things he's ever done, all of the riches in life and the success, whatever else it is you might be pursuing, in the end when you stand before God, all that matters is one thing. Did you know Jesus? Did you love him? Did you follow him? Did you serve him? That's what Paul's entire life was all about. Everything else, he says, it's rubbish. It's dung. It's worthless. It stinks compared to knowing Christ. That's all that matters in the end. 
That's Paul's goal. That's what he's all about. And if you know Paul's story, he left everything behind to pursue that. He, yeah, all, everything that he had built up to that point, he left it all behind. He, he died a martyr's death in Rome, right? Eventually beheaded for his faith. And he says, you know what he says at the end in, in 2 Timothy? He says, I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. He says, it's all worth it. I fought the good fight. Uh, and, and in the end, there's a crown waiting for him in heaven, and he can't wait to go for it. And, he, and he, he laid down everything, loved Christ more than his own comfort, loved Christ more than his own life. And he says it's all worth it in the end because that's all that matters. That's what his life was all about. And he keeps going in verse 9. So he says, in order that I may gain Christ. And he says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul's saying, look, my righteousness is nothing. I don't have a righteousness of my own. Even the apostle Paul, we say, wow, if there's a righteous guy on earth, that was Paul, right? I mean, he wrote most of the Bible, the New Testament at least, right? I mean, if, if there's any righteous person among us, it would have been Paul. And Paul says, I have no righteousness of my own. It's nothing. It's worthless. But all the righteousness that I have, he's saying, comes only through faith in Christ. It's not my righteousness. It's his righteousness. That's what I'm relying on. And that's an amazing thing, isn't it? That when we have faith in Christ, when we stand before God in judgment one day, if we're depending on our own deeds and our own actions and our own righteousness, we're in trouble, Right? None of us are good. None of us are righteous. None of us are perfect. None of us have held uh, God's holy standards perfectly. We're all deserving judgment. Yet Paul's saying when we have faith in Christ, he gives us his righteousness, his perfection, and he clothes us in it. Uh, it's, it's the great exchange. It's amazing. There's nothing like it. So when we stand before God in judgment one day, he doesn't just see us in our righteousness. He sees the righteousness of Christ because we have faith in him. It's the best thing going. It's incredible. Paul says, I don't have any righteousness of my own. I have it only because Jesus has given me his. And that's what I'm hanging on to. So my entire life, because of that, I just want to know him. I want to know his power. And I want to share in his suffering. That's not something that we would think would be in there, right? That's not something we're like, yeah, I can't wait to suffer for Jesus. <laughs> Looking forward to this year. I just want to suffer more for Christ. <laughs> right? no, one, no one's doing that. You know, we want to say, like, oh, I want the blessings of God. I want the blessings of him. But Paul knows, like, look, if I love Jesus enough and I end up suffering because I love Jesus and because I'm ministering for him, then I'm also going to share in his blessings one day too. And he counted it honor to be able to, to suffer for Christ. Uh, that's how much he cared about, about Jesus and how much he followed after him. And all he wanted to do is just to know him. Now, here's what's interesting to me. There's a big difference between knowing about somebody and knowing somebody. You know what I mean? I can know a lot about somebody, but it doesn't mean I actually know somebody. Uh, for example, I grew up here in the Valley, and I'm uh, raised up here in the Valley, and uh, I'm a big-time Suns fan. Any other Phoenix Suns fans out there? A few of you? Yeah, go Suns. Uh, and weird year this year, but I'm still hopeful. And, uh, and uh, I, I grew up a Suns fan, right? Going all the way back to, like, you know, Kevin Johnson, Charles Barkley days, like, right, the, old, the good old days, uh, all the way till now. And now they got a young superstar. His name's Devin Booker. I can know a lot about Devin Booker, but it doesn't mean I know him, right? 
I can wear his jersey. I can know all the stats. I can, you know, read the tabloids or whatever else about his life. I can, I can know about him, but it doesn't mean I actually know him, right? I can go to the game and I can shout out, yay, Booker, hey, over here, you know, and he could care less. It's kind of sad, actually. He doesn't care at all about me. <sighs> yeah, it's, it's kind of sad. So I might know a lot about him, but I don't know him. He doesn't know my name. We've never had a conversation. I just watch him from a distance, uh, you know, and, and, and enjoy watching them play. But I think it's a lot of the time as Christians, when it comes to knowing Christ, we get caught up in knowing a lot about him, but do we really know him? See, what Paul's writing about when he comes to saying, I want to know Christ, is not just an information. It's a relationship, right? It's not just informational. It's relational. He's, he's saying, I don't want to just know about Jesus. So a lot of us, we grow up in church or we, we go to church a lot and we know a lot about Jesus. We know the stories, we've heard about it, we've read the Bible, right? We've heard a lot of things about him. We go to Bible studies and all that stuff. But if we're not careful, we just sit in this knowing about Jesus and we don't really know him. We don't have a relationship with him. Uh, Paul's saying, look, I want to know Christ. Not just about him, but I want to know him. And Paul had a relationship with Jesus. He talked to him through prayer. He heard from him through, through reading the word and studying the word. And he followed him every single day, obeying his commands and following after him, walking in the path of Jesus with him every single day, aware of his presence in his life. His whole life was about Jesus in him and through him in everything that he did. He had a relationship with Jesus. He knew Christ. He didn't just know about him. And if we're not careful, we'll get stuck in that. See, Paul was a single-minded man on a mission living for Christ. And so he continues writing about this in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now that's really deep right there. Paul's saying, I've not already obtained perfection, or I can't obtain perfection. Nobody's perfect in this life. But I press on anyways to make it my own, to get as close as I can. I'm still striving for it. Why? Because Jesus Christ has already made me his own. Now think about that. Paul's saying, I don't try to make Christ my own so that then one day God will be happy with me and then make me his own, so that I can earn God's favor. He says, Jesus has already made me his. And because of that, I just want to make him mine. Like, I want to follow him. I want to know him because he's already had favor on me. He's already saved me. He already loves me. And so I want to live the rest of my days following after him. I want to pursue him the rest of my days because he's already grabbed onto me and held me. And so I'm just trying to grasp him the rest of my life. So I'm so thankful for who he is and what he's done for me. And then he says, brothers, in verse 13, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this is Paul's number one goal right here. Uh, he knows I'm not perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. But he says, I'm not just going to give up then and just live however I want because I'm never going to reach it. That's not it. So there's, just, there's just some Christians who, uh, you know, maybe you, you believe that you're saved and you say, look, I, 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 I'm never going to be perfect, so I might as well just give up and live however I want. You know, God's, God saved me. All right, I'm good. Now I'm going to go eat, drink, and be merry and party and have a good time and do whatever I want to do. That's not it. So Paul's saying, look, it's not, it's not lawlessness to go live your life. And at the same time, he's also saying it's not complete legalism where you say that I've already attained this, that I've, I've justified myself by all the good things I've ever done. That's every other religion in the world. That's not Christianity. 
He's saying, I'm, I'm never going to attain perfection, but I've already have it in Christ. So I'm not just going to give up and do whatever I want. I'm going to keep pushing forward and keep trying to be more like Christ because of what Christ's already done for me. He's, uh, uh, one way of looking at it is Paul's using the wording here that's very similar to, uh, to, to terminology they would use about races back in the day, uh, about like athletic races, right? Competing in a race. Uh, back in the Philippians would have been very familiar with this because in the Greek city, they would have been very f- familiar with the Greek Olympic games and those kind of things. And so Paul's using imagery like that here. When he says, I press on toward the goal, what he's saying there is a, a term that that word for press on in the original language literally means to run after, to chase forward, to, 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 to pursue something like a, like a runner in a race. And the, the imagery there is saying, it's like, it's not just like if, if you've ever uh, run track and field or anything like that. I did it for a little bit. I wasn't very good, but I did it. And uh, if you've ever run track and field, when you get to that, when you get towards that finish line, you don't slow down because you're almost there and ease up because you're about to cross it. And, uh, you stretch forward, you strain, you reach as fast as you can, as far, you know, leaning forward, giving every last ounce of effort that you can. And then after you cross that line, then you collapse because you've given it your all. That's kind of the imagery that he's given here. You're straining, you're pressing, you're trying to get that extra tenth of a second so that you can win the prize, giving everything you have to follow after Jesus. This imagery is like faith is, it's a lot like a race. Uh, and and we, sometimes I think as Christians, we can get this really mixed up. The starting point in your faith in Christ is when you have faith. That's when God saves you. You have faith in Jesus Christ. You are saved. You are justified. You're good, right? Amen. But a lot of Christians, they stop there. Like that's the finish line. I'm saved. I'm good. Uh, that's not it. That's not the finish line. There's still more to this life than that. The life is, it's, it's a long race. Uh, the finish line is heaven. So until you get there, you're not done. That's the end goal. That's the, the I'm going to live my life, then one day I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be with Christ and enjoy all the blessings of eternity and paradise with him. Amen. It's going to be awesome. That's the finish line. So between your beginning of your faith, when you, when you first place faith in Christ, when he saves you, and the ending point, when you're in heaven and eternity with him one day, we, where are we at here? Uh, that's where I think some of us, we get, we get this mixed up. We're, like, we're in this race where we're growing in our faith. We're enduring in our faith. We're persevering through the difficulties and the trials and the sufferings that life can bring sometimes. And, and we're doing everything we can pursuing after Christ. That's what it's, the journey's about, right? Some of us, we're closer to that finish line than others. Some of us, we're just at the very beginning of the journey. But we can't think that, okay, I've saved. I'm done. I'm done with the race. I dropped out. And we can't also say, I've already finished, that makes sense? A lot of Christians, they're, they're like, oh, I'm done, did everything I did. You know, I'm saved, I'm good. I can just enjoy my life now. That's not it. Paul says we gotta keep straining, keep striving to do one thing. What is that? To know Christ, to pursue after him, to have that relationship with him. Paul is totally single-minded in this. And look at this, Philippians chapter one, verse 21, just a few chapters before this we're reading. He says this, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Paul writes, for to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. For Paul, his entire life is Christ. That's the definition of his life. Everything about my life is for Christ. And if I die, I win. Because if I die, I get to be with Christ. And if I'm still alive, I get to pursue him and grow and know him and help others come to know him. And so if I live, it's all about Christ. And if I die, I get to be with Christ. What can anybody do to me? That's what Paul in prison writing Philippians all about joy because he's in Christ and he knows everything's good. Whether he's persecuted, whether he's suffering, whether he's in prison, he knows where he's going and he knows what his mission is here while he's here. 
He's got single-mindedly just focused on Christ and he's doing it to the best of his ability. So Paul does this one thing, running after Christ. Uh, and look back again at verse 13 of chapter three. We can't miss this. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to that goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he says, forgetting the past, I strain forward. How many of us get so wrapped up and stuck in the past? So many things in life, whether it's a past success that we're still holding on to and justifying our, uh, ourselves by. Uh, I think of it this way. Like, have you ever seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite? Uncle Rico, the character, if you know what I'm talking about. He's like this older guy living in a van. He like can't get over his high school years, like constantly reliving the, the glory days of high school football. If coach would have just put me in the championship, we would have won. That's like his, that's his thing. And he just can't move on with his life. And he's like 40 or 50 years old now, still living in a van, still reliving his glory days of high school. And it's like, that's not it. You can't hold on to the past and just constantly relive the past. You've got to move on with your life. You've got to keep moving forward. Uh, and, and it's not some past success that you just hang on to and say, well, I'm good now. I did this one thing, so, so my life's good and complete, and I can just rest in that. God's got more ahead for you. Can't keep looking back behind you. It's almost like this imagery of like a runner running forward, and he's constantly looking over the shoulder, right? That's what Paul's saying. You've got to forget what lies behind you and keep pushing forward for the goal. You know, if you've ever run races, you know, like if you're looking behind you, that's not a good thing. You're slowing down. You're not running as fast and you're not looking where you're going and you're going to hit something or, get, or, or something else, right? Uh, I think of it this way. My kids, uh, when I taught them how to ride their bikes, they had the same problem. They're constantly looking down at the bike as they're riding and, and you're not looking where you're going. And part of the problem is like you're just so worried about the bike. Uh, but the, the problem is if you're constantly looking down, you're not looking where you're going. And you learn as you get better at riding a bike that you actually looking forward is a lot easier than just looking straight down. Uh, and also, you know where you're going. My kids kept veering off the sidewalk and running into bushes and stuff, right? Or even if you're not looking down and you're looking to the side, you're going to start going where your eyes are going, and all of a sudden you start veering off the path, right? You ever do that when you're driving? You're just, whoop, I'm, I've been looking at, swerving into other lanes because I'm looking at something on the side of the road that I should be focused where I'm going. And Paul's saying, you can't keep looking behind you. You've got to keep looking forward. So whether it's a past accomplishment that you're still just reliving over and over again or something in your past you're still, you know, hanging on to, uh, or a, a lot of us, it's a past hurt. It's some pain in our past, something that happened to us. Whether it's a family situation that we had, whether it's something that somebody said to us that is still, still repeating and on repeat in our memory over and over and over again. Uh, some pain in a relationship that we've had or a divorce, whatever else, something that is just, just painful, right? And many of us, we're still hanging on to that thing in our past that we're not able to move forward to what God has for us because we're constantly looking over our shoulder back at this thing. And Paul's saying, you got to forget what lies behind us. And we've got to strain forward to the goal. And you might say to me, Brandon, you know, you don't understand. You don't know what happened to me. You don't understand my situation. This hurt. This was terrible. This, I, I can't get over this. And I don't want to minimize that this morning. I don't want to say like, you know, that it wasn't a big deal. It probably really, really hurt. And it's probably really terrible. And I'm sorry. But we got to understand that our past doesn't define us. When we're in Christ, Christ defines us. It's not the thing that's behind us that we need to hold on to. It's the thing in front of us. It's Christ and he's got us. And so we don't have to keep letting that define who we are. We got to let Christ define who we are and holding on to his perfection and not our imperfection. And you say, Brandon, you don't know what I did. This is this thing I did. I can't forgive myself. I hurt some people. I did something. I did this terrible thing and I can't let go of this. I can't forgive myself. And you know, you, you might be right. You, you, may, you probably did something really, really bad. But there's a lot of people in the Bible who did a lot of really, really bad things. And Paul was one of them. 
he was killing Christians and persecuting him, and God forgave him as well. And so if God can forgive a, a, a guy like Paul, he can forgive you and me too. And there's, there's nothing we can do that, that can outsend the grace of God. And we got to realize that if God says we're forgiven, we're forgiven. And we say, well, I can't forgive myself. I hear that a lot, right? I can't forgive myself. Well, who are we to say that our standards are higher than God's? If God's forgiven us, then it's a dangerous place to say, well, I'm, I got a higher standard. I'm not going to forgive me. If God's forgiven us, we got to accept that and rest in that and just know we're forgiven. And we've got to be able to move forward. Now, I'm not saying it's not going to still be a, a thing that we got to work through and all that, but we can, we can take those sins of the past. We can repent of them, bring them out into light, and God will forgive us for those. Whether it's a past thing we've done or something that somebody's done to us, we can move forward. We can forget what lies behind. We can leave that in the past because in Christ, we're a new creation. In Christ, we've been forgiven. In Christ, we are no longer citizens here on earth. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are part of the family of God and we can move forward to what God has in store for us and not in just all the junk that's in our past. So we got to get that. We got to understand that. And so if you get nothing else today, here's, here's what I hope you get. The number one goal, the one thing we need is just this, just make Christ the singular goal of your life. That's what Paul did, and that's what we need to do too. If you're a believer today, make Christ the center of everything in your life. What if we actually did that? What if Christ was truly the goal of everything that we did in our work, in our play, in, in the way that we speak, in the way that we think, in everything that we do in life? What if Christ was at the center? How would that change things? You know, maybe you're here today and you're retired and you're a grandparent or whatever else. And uh, if Christ is the center of your life, you've got to realize that your life right now is more than about, you know, the cliche of like sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair or whatever else. Does anybody even have front porches in Arizona? I don't even know anymore, right? But but it's more than just sitting back and kicking back and saying, okay, I did everything. I'm done. I finished the race. I'm just going to kick back and enjoy these years. That's great. Enjoy those years. But if you are in Christ and he's the center of your life, you're not done. There's still more for you to accomplish. There's still more that Christ has in store for you. You may have more time in your golden years than, than you did before to pursue Jesus and make a difference in the people in the community around you and your kids and your grandkids' lives. Uh, you're not done yet. Keep running that race for Christ. And you have no idea what God might still do in your life. It's incredible. You're not done with that race. You're, you're, you may be retired, but you're not done yet. You're not retired from being a Christian. Keep following Jesus. Uh, maybe you're uh, busy in the workplace still. Uh, you know, work takes up so much of your life, doesn't it? Like so many waking hours you spend at work. It, it's a long time. But here's the thing. What if Christ was the center of your life even through and in your work? You may have access to a place or to a group of people or influence in an area that nobody else does. And God's going to use you to do incredible things if you just follow him in the way that you talk to other people, in the way that you have integrity at your work, in the way that you treat your coworkers or you treat your customers or the way uh, that you just live a life that is more like Christ. Uh, you never know what God might do in and through you in that place that other people don't have access to. Other people don't have the same level of influence that you do in that place. You're not done. Make Christ the center of every area of your life. Uh, maybe you're a student today and you, uh, you're going to school. Your life is more than about just getting good grades and finding somebody to date and having a good time and making memories, right? If you're a Christian, you are going into a place that, if, especially if it's a public school where there may not be a lot of Christian influence and you have an opportunity to be a light and to shine in that place, to go somewhere that not everybody else can get to. Like we're trying to help to get into some schools here and help out, uh, do some things. We got some things we're working on with Corona actually next year. It's pretty exciting. We'll probably talk about that later, but, uh, but it's hard to get on some of these school campuses and make a difference. And you have access every single day hanging out in that classroom with your friends and with your peers. What could you do if you uh, 
we're making Christ the center of your life every single day in the way that you influence other people around you. And I'm not going to lie, like sometimes being a Christian in those places, sometimes you're going to experience some suffering. Sometimes you're going to experience some persecution. People might make fun of you because you don't say the bad words. People might make fun of you because you pray before meals or because you don't go and do the things that they're all doing after hours and whatever else. But even if you do get persecuted, even if you do suffer, you're sharing in the suffering of Christ, like Paul said. And you're also going to be sharing in the blessing of Christ one day as well. So hold firm to that. Don't let that discourage you. Don't let that stop you. Because for some of us, following Christ is going to, it's going to cost us, but don't lose heart. Keep running that race. Keep striving. Keep straining. Keep pressing on eyes focused on the goal with what you're doing and where you're going. So Paul continues. He's not done yet. He, he writes in verse 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, that word mature there is actually really fascinating. In, in the original language, it's very, very, very similar to the word that he uses earlier when he talks about perfect. Uh, the, the words are very close. It's almost a play on words. It's almost like saying those who are mature are those who are mo- most perfect. They're nearing perfect. They're almost, com- they're nearing, co- they're most complete, right? He's saying those who are mature, like uh, the, the most perfect among us are the ones who realize how Im- imperfect we are. Isn't that interesting? Because Paul's saying, I'm not perfect. I'll never attain this, but I'm keep striving. And those who are most mature are the ones who realize how, how, how much they fall short. Th- that's maturity. Those who are most perfect among us are realize how imperfect they are and what they hold on to what they have attained. They hold on to Christ who we're in, who is our perfection, not us. You realize how far short you fall and how amazing God is and you hold on to him. That's maturity. That's Christian maturity. I fall short every single day, but I'm pursuing Jesus regardless. Keep striving, keep straining towards him, holding on to him to define me and him to be perfect because I could never live up to that. That's maturity right there. Keep striving forward, holding on to him. And then in verse 17, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. I mean, how many of us need good Christian influences in our life, don't we? There's so many times in my life where my faith has been weak and I've been struggling with some things and I've had other Christians who are mature, who are examples to me that I look to and their faith has inspired me to keep moving forward. Uh, and eventually as you follow and you imitate these other godly men and women, eventually their faith starts to become your faith as well. And it's no longer you're just copying them, but you're living it out and it's who you are at the same time. We need to follow good Christian influences. And Paul saying, I'll be one. Join, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Keep following after us. Surround yourself with good Christian influences. And verse 18 says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Isn't that our world today? Many are walking as enemies of Christ. Their end is destruction. Paul, with tears in his eyes, is telling us this, right? He knows where they're heading. They think that what they have is going to be the greatest because they're pursuing all the earthly things, all the things the world has to offer. And Paul knows in the end, it's just leading to their own destruction. Their God's their belly. What does that mean? It's not that they're worshiping their belly, okay? Uh, Their God is their desires, their cravings, the things that they want. Uh, They're pursuing every earthly and worldly pleasure. Isn't that our world? It's just hedonism, right? Whatever makes you happy, do it and celebrate it, right? And just go for it, whatever floats your boat. That's, that's, they're pursuing their, their belly, their desires, their appetites, whatever it is, that's their God, not Jesus. And they glory in shameful things. They're celebrating things that should be shameful, 
That's the world we live in. And Paul says he's weeping for those people and he's doing everything he can with the life that he has to reach those people for Christ, to try to help them out so they don't head for that destructive path. But then in verse 20, he says, but our citizenship, all who are in Christ is in heaven. For if we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's the finish line right there. Our, this is where we're going. Our citizenship's in heaven. He, one day where he's going to resurrect us to live with him for eternity. And so Paul's saying, here's the two paths we have in life. There's like a fork in the road, right? As you're on this race, as you're on this journey, you've got two paths, right? You're either going to be one, you're going to be Christ-centered in everything that you do, or you're going to be self-centered. This is the choice you have before you today. Are you going to follow Christ and make him the center of your life or are you going to live for yourself? Because if God is not on the throne, if Christ is not on the throne, something else is taking that place. And I know as, even as a pastor, this is a struggle for me, right? There are days where I'm like, man, I, I realize I'm, I'm being so self-centered here. I'm only thinking about myself and I'm not, my priorities are getting mixed up and I have to repent and like, God, I'm going to put you back on the throne of my life. And it's not that I have to put him back there. He's already there. But I got to acknowledge and realize that Jesus Christ is the one who's ruling and reigning and not me. And whether it's ourselves or something else, if we don't have Christ on that throne of our lives, we're going to be worshiping something, whether it's ourselves or something else. And so here's the two paths that we have before you. And there's the big warning. If you don't follow Christ, you're heading for destruction. You're, you're worshiping yourself and you can start hardening. Your, heart, your heart's going to get hardened and you're going to go down this bad path. And Paul's urging everyone, please follow Christ. Seek after him with all of your life. Make him the singular goal of your life. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said it this way. He said, if Christ is not first with you, Christ is nothing to you. That's some hard words right there, but it's true. If Christ isn't first in your life, something else is going to be taking that place. Something else is going to be worshiped instead. So may we be a church that puts Christ first. May we be a people who are pursuing him, letting go of what's behind us and pressing forward to what lies ahead. So here's just the question I want to ask us all today as we wrap up this year, looking forward to the next one. What will you adore in 2024? What are you going to pursue? What is your goal? What is your aim? Where is your heart pulling you? Uh, may it be Jesus. May we put him in the center of all our life because the Bible says we can, if we put our faith in him, if we just follow after Jesus, pursue him and his righteousness, then we don't have to worry about anything else. Everything else God is going to take care of. If we get this one thing straight, everything else is going to work. How could that change the way that we live our lives, the way we work, the way we play, the way we have relationships, the way we, we drive, the way we speak, the way we do anything in life if we just put Christ at the center? And so I want to leave us with this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith.